you just see if it is it there? There it is. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 tell you what it's like to be justified by faith. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since, is this sort of double looking back. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. And then in verse 9, since we have been justified by Jesus' blood. What's it like? What's it like to be on the inside of that glorious rescue? Well, we're going to learn a few things. I hope we're going to learn a few things. I hope we're going to learn that what it is that in here, what it is to be a Christian day to day over these weeks. I hope we're going to see a contrast of what it's like before God, um, before God rescued us, and what it's like now He has justified us. Those of you who are Christians in this room are justified by Jesus. You've trusted in him, and there's a very big difference to you now. I want you to see that this morning. We get to know what a Christian knows for sure, absolutely knows for sure. We learn how they can face life in a totally different way to those who have not been justified. And we hear Christians in this passage, we hear Paul And hopefully us, when we leave, boasting, or some translations say glorying in, or another translation says rejoicing in, the one who has made it all possible. Do you want to know what it's like inside? Do you want to go inside the factory? Come with me to Romans chapter 5. And the first thing you see in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Do you see it? Make sure you see it. It's amazing. We have peace with God. Before you trusted in Christ, I don't know if you realized this. Well, actually, you did realize this if you trusted in Christ. Before you trusted in Christ, before you were justified by God, there was a state of war between you and God. A state of war. How, how can that be? Why, why, is, why do I say that? Well, the thing is, is, is that we claim, before we're justified by God, we claim lordship, kingship, rulership over the same things God does. Come with me to Costco car park on Saturday morning and you will see this claiming rulership over the same thing in action. Costco car park on Saturday morning is incredibly busy and you will see the vultures circling the car park in their cars looking for that parking space. What happens when two reach the same space? A state of war sometimes. You'll hear voices. You'll hear loud voices. I got there first! And probably ruder things than that. One writer puts it like this. When you sin, you not only break God's law, but you assume the right and authority to do so. You claim to be king over yourself and the world. The problem is that God claims kingship over the same things. So before you're justified by God, there is a state of war between God and you. you we read about it in chapter 1. We're going we're to go here a couple of times. Chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. The wrath 
of God. This is God at war. The wrath of God is presently now being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is angry with us, and there is a state of war, and it's nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it without turning to faith in Christ. It's nothing at all, because God is legally angry with us. He doesn't fly off the handle in his anger. This is a specific legal issue. He owns everything, and we step on that, and we say we own it. No, you don't. God does. There is this state of war. As a child, I remember hearing some adults say things like this. As a, I remember this. Old Bill, he's finally made his peace with God. Old Bill, you know old Bill. He's finally made his peace with God. The problem is, is Bill could never make his peace with God. God has to make peace with Bill. We can't just turn back to God and start doing good. The offense cuts eternally deep. It's not something that we can do. We have heaped up a debt we cannot pay that leads to a sentence we cannot avoid. You may have seen it in films. You may have seen this in films. I've certainly seen it in films. Um, Forrest Gump is one of them. Uh, You've seen it in films where a character in a storm who's very angry, he's a very angry character, he's in a storm, there's rousing music, or perhaps he's under fire from an enemy, and, uh, and he starts screaming and shouting at the heavens, all his bitterness to the Almighty, venting his hatred, as if, as if he is putting God in the dock and saying, God, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. But that is just not how it is. God is Lord of all, and God needs to make peace with us. And for every follower of Jesus in this room, they know that God was at war with them. And they know that God was ju- that, that war was just. But when we trust, when you have trusted in the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you have peace. God has ceased hostilities with you, with us. We have peace with God. And do you know that peace means we have a pass? It means we have a pass. I don't know if anyone, any of you have got one of these. I've got a pass. It's Lifestyles at Flitig. You got one of these? Anyone got one of these? They are irritatingly small. I don't know how many times it takes you to get through that gate. It takes me at least three or four attempts. I've got another pass. This is a much bigger one. Okay? And this, I've put this in a machine, and it gives me access to how little exercise I've been doing. We have passwords. We have a pass. It gives us access into all the delights of pumping iron. Every time you use it, think about the pass you have. Look at verse 2, verse 1. Again, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Think about it before. Before you trusted in Christ, before God had done anything on your behalf, you had no access and no welcome from God. 
Your past did not let you in. It would never work. It would always go beep and be red. It would never let you in, no matter how many times you tried. Okay, yes, we did enjoy, enjoy, sorry, we did enjoy his common graces of breath and bread, as most of us in the Western world do, but we actually didn't know him. We didn't know anything of him. We didn't know his family. We didn't enjoy fellowship with his people. We had no hope. But when you come near to God through Christ, when you ask God to forgive you, you have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. What does that mean? To gain access here to grace is to be brought near. It's like to have an introduction. Okay, So if you were to meet the queen, I can assure you there would be someone there to introduce you. There'd be someone there to introduce you. Here, here, Jesus is your introduction. He gives you access. Your access to enter the presence of God. Here's what one writer says, Tim Keller. He says this, Wherever we go now, wherever we go in the world, we are always in the heavenly throne room. I'm going to say that again because it's amazing. Wherever we go now, if you're a Christian, wherever we go now, we are always in the heavenly throne room. You have access to God. Peace. God ends hostilities with us and a pass. You have an open relationship with him. Just enjoy these verses. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? To bring us to God. Hebrews 10.19-22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what does he tell us to do? He says, come and draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Ephesians 3.12, in him and through faith, in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Can you just walk into Buckingham Palace? You can't. There are soldiers. They'll stop you. You don't have a pass. Can you walk? Can you be? In fact, you are now, if you're a Christian, you are now in God's throne room. You've got a pass. You're there. You have access. It actually goes even deeper than this in Ephesians 2, 17 and 19. It's not just about you. It's actually about us. It's all of us together. Listen to this. He doesn't just give me. That's a very Western, world, Western way to think about our relationship with God, to think about it as me and God. It's not just me and God. It's never just me and God. It's us. Listen to, listen to Ephesians 2, 17 and 19. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The the far away were the Gentiles and the near were the Jews. For through Jesus, we have both, Gentiles and Jews, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, 
You, Gentiles and Jews, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We, together, are in the presence of the King. And that means I not only have access to him, but actually, I know you. Without the justification of Jesus, I would not know you. You would not know me. We would not have each other as a family. We have gained access into all that God wants to bring us into. His family, his joys. And we get to walk and talk with God about anything. About any requests or problems, failures, joys, longings or whatever. And he hears us and he relates to us. You have a profound, boundless relationship with God right now. If you're on the inside and have been justified by Jesus. You know, we don't meet here out of some religious duty, out of some idea that it curries some favor with God. We meet here and we sing about him and we read his word and we listen to and we talk to him because we can. Because before we couldn't. You have access. Now listen, when you start to understand what it is to be on the inside of being a Christian and knowing God who's made peace with you and has given you a free pass to him always, it does something to you and it did something to Paul here. It makes you boast. It makes you boast. Three times he boasts. In verse 2, he's rejoicing and boasting in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he's rejoicing and boasting in, surprisingly, pain and problems. In verse 11, he's rejoicing and boasting in the God who reconciles. There is three times he starts boasting, not in himself, not in what he has done. He doesn't go before God and look how great I am. He just stands there and says, look how great God is. I say boast. It's actually translated three different ways. And if in your version it says glory in or rejoice in, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. And the idea is this. When you rejoice, boast, or glory in something, you value it so much that you think about it a lot and love to tell people about it. Earlier on this year, uh, as an example, I was talking to quite a few people about the English, English cricket, cricket team. Yep. They won the World Cup and they did it in a super over. And Ben Stokes was amazing. You think about it a lot, and you love to tell other people about it. A few uh, weeks ago, I sat in uh, Norman and Joyce's front room with my son Dominic, and we watched England get hammered by South Africa. And guess what? I've never told anyone about that. (laughs) I'm not glorying in that. It's not something I want to dwell on. But whenever you value something so much that you think about it a lot, and you love to tell people about it, you're boasting, you're glorying in. It's a positive thing. And people who are justified by faith in Jesus find themselves boasting. They find themselves boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 2, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
A moment ago, I said this. When you look on the inside of being a Christian, you know that God has made peace with you and you have a free pass to him always. You realize at last that relating to God is what you were made for. Enjoying him forever is where you belong and where God is going to take you. Hope, as we say frequently up here, Bob says it, I say it, other people who preach here say it, hope is a little bit weak in English. It actually means conviction, looking forward to something that is wonderful, that inspires, and is going to happen. Okay, that's hope. It's going to happen. It's more like the way some children in this room are probably thinking about Christmas. Christmas is, you know, unless Jesus returns, Christmas is going to happen. It's going to happen. And they are looking forward to it with great hope. We now have a Christmas tree up in our house already because my children are looking forward to it with that hope. It's going to happen. Before... We trusted in God, enjoying the glory of God, is what we naturally gave up. Before we trusted in God, in Christ, we didn't boast in this. We gave it up. We swapped it out. Romans 1 um, and verse 21. For although they knew God, all people, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do, these foolish people, me and you, before we knew God? What did we do? We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for stuff he's made. Before, we gave this up. But now, by being justified through Jesus, by you trusting in that, he's going to give it all back. You see, we've given up puffing ourselves up to be bigger by this or that achievement. We're not justified by ourselves. No Christian in this room thinks they deserve to be in God's presence. No Christian in this room thinks they can show off before God. We don't boast in ourselves. We are justified by God, and now we wait contented to see what he will do with us. And it's glory is what he will do with us, we're told here. Glory. This is a huge, huge subject. Glory, God's glory and us enjoying it. Um, Yesterday, I had a different title for this part of the talk. I was all about alliteration, and I threw it away. But anyway, it was this. It It was all about the letter P, and I had boast in your place in the party. And it just, it's just not big enough, your place in the party. It's just not big enough for the glory that God has for us. It, it is a party because Jesus said it was. Jesus told us stories about how there will be a wedding banquet for those who have followed him at the end. Jesus told a glorious story about a son who, who nicked all his father's money, went off and got, just spent it on himself. But when he came back to his father, what did his father do? He threw a party for him. It is a party, but it's not just a party. Jesus also said in John 14 that it's a house where he has many rooms and he's going to prepare a place for you. God is going to perfect all that is imperfect about us. He's going to remake us and our bodies to be like Jesus' character and his 
resurrected body and place us in a new creation to know him and to be fully known. 1 John chapter 2. We will be so transformed into creatures of such beauty that, as C.S. Lewis said, if you saw one now, you would be tempted to worship it. We may have exchanged the glory of God in the past to our shame and destruction, but now, through faith in Jesus, we have the hope of glory, and it is worth worth telling people about. It's worth thinking about. It's worth boasting in. It's yours. If you are justified by faith. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God in the future. Guaranteed. Going to happen. We also boast in something very, very surprising. We boast in problems and pains. We boast in suffering. If you're not sure, it's worth reading it. Not only, verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, we're told. We find Christians glory, boast in their sufferings. I mean, that is staggering. That is something that we would never, ever, ever have done uh, before trusting in Christ. We'd never have done that. I was in a cafe yesterday, and the owner dropped something on the floor. I think it was a glass. I think it had something in it. She dropped something on the floor. And this is how, this is how she approached her very, 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 very minor suffering. She said, that wasn't too bad, considering the weekend I've had so far. That's how she approached. The, that's how she, that's, that was her approach to suffering. That was commonly our approach to suffering before we knew faith in Christ Jesus. But when we trust, we see there is purpose and there is love in the pain. Now, I need to clarify a few things here, okay? We don't want suffering like a masochist. We don't rejoice for suffering, somehow wanting more pain. That is utterly foolish. We don't go looking for it. We don't use suffering as another way to justify ourselves before God or other people. I mean, that is a temptation for those who are called to suffer, to suffer much. You know, you sort of say, oh, I'm suffering so much. God owes me. God owes me because I've suffered. Suffering is not a kind of weird work that we use to get God's favor. And we don't think we're better than other people 
who suffer less than us. You know, they they can't cope with a cut finger, so I'm going to resent them because I have had a broken leg. We don't do that with suffering. We don't just endure suffering with a British stiff upper lip. Whatever that is. I've never actually understood that. I don't know if someone could explain that to me afterwards. But it is a phrase that we use in this country. Uh, This sort of stoical, this sort of, you know, just getting on with it, even though it hurts. We don't do that. And we don't mope. We don't mope in suffering, sinking into self-centered, depressive attitudes, oh, woe is me. That isn't what someone who has been justified by faith does. What we do is first we see suffering are stairs to stronger assurance. Look, there's a little argument here. Look at it. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. It stares. You see the argument? It stares. The word for perseverance is the word for single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. To those who are justified by faith in Jesus, suffering strips away all that is unimportant. It strips away and focuses us on what is really lasting by removing all other distractions. That's the first step. It strips away all that's unimportant. Not infrequently, I hear Christians say exactly that. They realize that they don't need it anymore, whatever it was, that now it's gone. Because they have Christ. Perseverance, that first step. Once you go up that first step and these things have been stripped away... Perseverance produces character. Character is this idea of being tested or made ready. In that terrible Rugby World Cup final, there was one team that was just not ready. They weren't ready at all. They weren't ready. I had this experience this week. Um... One of my product team had a chat with me and told me that he tested something we've just built at work and it didn't work at all. Did you test it, he said? Was it ready? Good question. Obviously not in the world that he was using. (laughs) Suffering, as suffering strips away everything else, you know, we may turn to for help As suffering strips that away, we are made ready. We are tested. We are made ready to trust in our God more deeply. It grows in us the discipline to do our duty, to trust our God when all is dry and hard, to trust our God when no one else does, to trust our God will get us through to the end when the end seems so far off. If you grow in a single-mindedly focusing way on God, you will grow in confidence in him because that character, that being made ready through suffering, produces hope. The fruit of it all is an ever deeper assurance that you have access to and will enjoy forever all God is and has for us. There is light at the end of the tunnel and it is God himself 
So first, there's this process that makes us glory, actually glory in sufferings. But God doesn't just leave us with a cold process. He doesn't leave us on our own in a cold process at all. He leaves us with his love in us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. You are given, if you are justified by faith, by God's Spirit indwelling you, God himself coming to live in you, you are given an absolute assurance of his love in the midst of this world's trials and troubles. There is available to you an experience of God himself to fill you. that You may know subjectively in your feelings, in your heart, that God loves you. We are comforted by his love in our hearts. Because God gives us that inner experience of his love. But he doesn't just leave it as an inner subjective experience of his love. He gives us a historical moment to pin our heart's desires to. He gives us a fact in history for us to see God's love demonstrated for us. And that's what the argument is in verse 6, 7 and 8. Look at it again. You can know, you can know for sure God's love for us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, you know, if they're a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The argument's simple enough. People very, very rarely die for anyone. Human beings just very rarely do that. It's ever so rare that a human being does that. We value ourselves far too highly just to give our life away so that someone else can live. It's ever so rare. It takes incredible love for someone to give their life away for someone else. They might just do it in the course of their duty and dare to die for someone that they see as good or a cause that is good. They might do that. But human love just doesn't extend to dying for someone that we know is evil. We just just can't see that. But there we were, Before, before we knew the love of God in Christ, before we were justified by God through Jesus' death, there we were, utterly powerless, nothing like God, nothing like we should be, ungodly. There we were, sinners, set apart for God's anger, enemies of God. There we were like that. There's nothing in us for God to go, oh, I think that's pretty lovely, that grave. There's nothing in us. Nothing in us to recommend us to God. Nothing at all. And what do we find Jesus doing at that moment when we could do nothing? Dying for you. So we boast. 
we base knowing that in the troubles and trials of this world, that there is a loving purpose behind it to fill us with hope in the glory of God. We boast, we boast knowing that in the troubles and trials, God gives us an experience, a subjective joy in his love. And we boast, we boast because we know as a fact in history that God died for us, even though we were most unlovely. We know we are loved despite what we are suffering, despite what we have lost. We know he loves us and will bring us home. So we boast, even in our struggles. And we lastly boast in the God who reconciles. In the last few verses, we're given yet another before and after, yet another view of what being justified by faith in Jesus means, what his death means for those who trust God's promises through it. The view here is the end of all things, where God's final day of reckoning with the world, when he will sort it all out. Paul told us in chapter 2 that because of the stubbornness of our unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And then in verse 10, he shows us that God reconciles an enemy. In the past, you're an enemy. In the past, there was war. Now, you are friends. Look at verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death in his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Look at what Jesus' death can do. Jesus' death can make you a friend of God forever. That's what his death can do. So him dying makes you a friend. What do you think his life will do then? Because he rose from the dead. If his death will make an enemy a friend of God, his life is going to give you glory forever. A friendship unbounded. Romans 8 verse 32, a little teaser trailer of what is to come. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What's it like inside the factory? What's it like? It's peace. It's access. It's boasting. If you forgive me a moment, I'm going to boast. I don't know if you know the God of the Bible, but the God of the Bible is fabulous. He's worthy of your every thought. He's worthy of you to tell other people about him. He is Fabulous. He has given us who trust in him everything he could. Everything he could. We hated him. We pushed him out of our lives. And yet he makes it right. It cost blood. Precious blood. The most precious blood there ever was in the entire universe. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he gave it to us so that we could be right. By doing it, He ceased hostilities. He's not angry with us at all anymore. He gave us a free pass to join with his family in his throne room 
where we are now in this world. You get to meet with other people who love and enjoy him and know them and know him and know him with them. The glory we hated, he is going to give back and allow us to enjoy the depths of forever. The sufferings we endure have a profound purpose in his hands to assure us more and more deeply of our future. To help us through all we must endure to grow, he pours his love into our hearts and demonstrates his love in history. There is no one like him that you could go to. There is no one like him that would go to such lengths to bring powerless, ungodly, sinful, evil enemies to be forever friends. There's no one like him. He He is fabulous. And I'd encourage you to boast. To boast in him. If you don't know him, you really, really should. You really should. Come to the front afterwards. Chat to me. Chat to one of the elders. Chat to Lee. We'd love to pray with you. Perhaps you talk to him for the first time today. And no peace. And no access. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great kindness to us in Christ to bring us into friendship with you and to let us into your throne room right now so that we can rejoice in you in song and in praise and in prayer. We thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.